Hello and welcome to episode two of the Basis Podcast, Agronomy Matters. My name is Greg Hopkinson, Technical Manager at Basis. Today we're going to be talking everything varieties. As harvest starts, thoughts are already turning to the next cropping year and our three guests this week will hopefully give you some invaluable advice on what you should be growing in 2020 and 2021. Please remember to listen through to the end of the podcast where Basis Professional Register members will find out how they can claim a CPD point for listening to this podcast. So our first speaker on this episode of the Basis Agronomy Matters podcast is David Udall, Head of Arable Markets at AHDB. So David is going to be giving us an insight into what the prospects are for the key arable markets over the next 12 months and how this might impact rotations and variety choices in 2020 and beyond. So hello, David, and thanks for joining us. Hello, Greg. It's a pleasure to join you and uh, speak to your audience. Thanks very much. So, obviously, this growing season has been particularly challenging. Lots of extreme weather with wet autumns and, and dry springs. So, the yield potential is down and, and the rotations have changed quite a bit in 2020. What impact do you think this is going to have on the supplier's key crops into UK markets? And, and what will the knock-on effects on price be over the next 12 months? So, I, I think there's three key areas we've got to look at really starting with wheat we obviously know you know we had the atrocious autumn conditions no one could get anything around pretty much end of september till well middle of march really in some cases in a scenario um, so we're going to see a drastically reduced wheat area there's also probably one of the largest areas of spring wheat that we've ever seen planted before as well so usually we only get between sort of five and six percent of the area planted for spring wheat this year realistically you know we could be heading to a quarter to a third of the crop maybe even more and um, planted to spring wheat so obviously that's going to have an impact on the yield potential and then we had the very dry weather through uh, april and may which have sort of curbed some development of those spring crops as well so you know we're expecting a wheat crop that's probably going to be you know in the region of around 10 million tons uh, to put that into context, that's the smallest wheat crop we've seen since the early 80s. And you know, the UK market has been used to consuming, you know, generally between 13 and 15 million tonnes of wheat um, every year. So a significant deficit. You know, we're going to have to import significant volumes of uh, quality wheat, so German milling wheat, Canadian milling wheat, to make up the balance. Um, and we're going to have to import um, a lot of uh, feed grains as well, most likely maize. So from a wheat price point of view, we're likely to be supported um, because we're going to have to stay at those uh, import parity prices. You know, there's some global risks, and I think we'll talk about those uh, in a bit. But in, in general, the wheat price should stay well supported. Um, it's a slightly different picture for barley because obviously you know, without any of the uh, wheat going in the ground, everyone's moved to spring barley realistically the last year when we had um, difficult planting conditions in 2012-13 uh, we saw around a million hectares of spring barley planted and you know i'd expect you're going to see something similar again this year and you know, that is leading to a pretty significant oversupply again even though yields you know realistically we're not going to be as good as we saw last year because of the growing conditions last year was a pretty exceptional year for yields um, so we're still going to be in a position where we've got an exportable surplus of barley. Um, a lot of that is still going to have to move in the first half of the marketing year before we leave the EU and move into a new trade deal in 2021. Um, so that's a key factor to consider the speed of that movement um, of barley in the first six months of the season. And then, you know, on the other side of that, we've got oilseed rape. Uh, you know, significant crop losses, again, through people having lack of establishments from the, from the poor conditions at the start of last year year uh, and then cabbage then flea beetle over the winter and in the early spring so again you know we're likely to see an oilseed rape crop in the region of uh, one million tons maybe slightly below that mark that's going to need a significant level of both raw rape seed imports as well as vegetable oil imports and protein imports to make up that deficit so it's a really varied year than what we've seen uh, for, for a very long time yeah, definitely. Um, it's definitely been an exceptional year in all cases. Um, just talking about the global picture a bit more, I know we've had tough conditions o over here and we talked a bit there a bit about um, importing, especially wheat into the country. What's the harvest looking like globally and, and will this impact UK crop prices as well? Yeah, I, to be honest, I think that's 
the picture has probably changed quite a lot in the last couple of weeks. If you were to ask me that question until four, six weeks ago, I'd probably give you a really, you know, bearish picture and I would have been talking the market down. We're at a very sort of uh, important time in the growing season for both US maize and also uh, spring wheat crops in Russia. Now, a few weeks ago, the, the US maize market was estimating a, a production of over 400 million tons. You know, we're going to see a, a massive US maize crop. And given the impacts of coronavirus and the lack of uh, biodiesel demand and ethanol demand, um, we were expecting to see a pretty big surplus for the maize market, which was kind of really pressuring values on the global market lower. In the last week or two, we've had uh, the US Department of Agriculture cut 2 million hectares off the US maize um, acreage for this season. It's expected that that might get slightly lower as well. And also we're seeing a real dry forecast and uh, high temperatures for the US Corn Belt for July. And this is their key yield. I think in general, you know, overall, we're still expecting an increase in stocks and, and large supplies from this coming harvest. But that's kind of just taking the edge off that sort of worst case scenario. Um, same for, for Russia. They've started their harvest. Yields have been below expectations. Um, they've probably you know, gone through the worst of the crops first, to be fair. So you know, you're never going to see the best yield at the start of the harvest. But again, there's a bit of a dry forecast. Spring wheat still needs to develop sort of the central Russian regions. Um, so you know, even though they're expecting a crop that will probably end up still in the sort of 75 to 78 million tonne mark, it's still a, a big crop but it isn't the complete, you know, mega barn buster that people are thinking. So overall, you know, from a global perspective, I would still say that we are in a period of oversupply rather than undersupply. But I think, you know, some weather issues in the last um, few weeks and what looks like it's coming up in the next couple of weeks has probably just taken the edge off that slightly. So I'd still expect, you know, from, from a barley export point of view, like we said a minute ago, they're still going to have to, you know, have some significant competition to get into these markets that they'll have to find. So there'll still be some price pressure for those export markets, definitely. That sounds slightly more positive than it than it could be potentially. <laughs> so that's a good sign anyway. We just mentioned it briefly before on, on coronavirus. Obviously it's had a massive impact on everyday lives now. We're just coming out of it and restrictions are being lifted quite a lot, but there's been no pubs, no hospitality sector, a lot more home cooking over the last few months. We've seen massive impacts of this on the livestock market in particular, but any impacts on the domestic arable markets? And, and can you see these impacts continuing into 2021? Yeah, I mean, the, the main impact has been on uh, molten barley. You know, we've seen a significant reduction in both brewing and um, distilling because of, obviously, as you said, the, the closure of the pubs and restaurants. And like you say, even though uh, they've reopened recently, questionable how quickly people are going to get back to their previous consumption patterns. We've also got a factor in, in the longer term for alcohol consumption, the potential effects of you know, quite prolonged and deep recession that we're going to see as well. Um, so people's um, purchasing habits do change. They, you know, don't go out as many meals, don't go to the pub on as many occasions. Their incomes are tighter at the moment and will, will be tighter um, across the country um, future. So I do feel that that multi market will still see a slightly reduced demand um, going into the new crop season. It's still probably going to be an oversupplied multi barley market in terms of tonnage. It all depends on the final quality of the crop. You know, we can still have some severe quality issues going through harvest, especially if we have a wet harvest and we have germination issues. Um, that could be an issue. Or if we have an extremely dry harvest and we end up getting um, Lots of skinning issues on, on molten barley as well, so grains. So they would have think the demand will be lower. That is still a risk for, for molten barley prices. Wheat supply hasn't been impacted as much, and I see any drastic changes in wheat supply uh, or wheat demand rather from this because of coronavirus going forwards, unless we see a you know a, a real severe return to a prolonged lockdown. And well, let's let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, talking about that, it, it's not sounding great for barley uh, barley growers at the minute. Do you think we'll see this year a bit of a, a change? Uh, more second wheats, more third wheats maybe? Probably at the expense of winter barley? Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine so. I mean, it's a logical thing, that you think, especially if farmers didn't have the opportunity to plant as much wheat as they wanted to uh, in 2019. And there is a a large area of viable land that could go back into wheat production um, this year, I'd imagine people really want to be doing that. I think the key thing is, it probably depends on the timing of 
harvest as well. We're probably going to have a bit of a later than normal harvest because of the increase in spring area that's gone in the ground. So I'd expect that people are probably, you know, generalising here, sort of finishing harvest middle end of September and pretty much going straight onto the land and trying to get wheat planted. And from a marketing point of view, I think, you know, as you kind of sort of alluded to, it makes sense to increase your wheat area at the expense of barley because barley is going to be oversupplied again. And, you know, we've got to then think of longer term impacts of that. If we're going to increase wheat area, say we go back to, you know, what we had in uh, harvest of 2019, just over 1.8 million hectares. You know, with an average yield, that's getting you 14.5 to 15 million tonnes of wheat, which is perfect for what the market needs. So if people are going to be massively increasing their wheat acreage for 21 harvest, you've got to start thinking now about how you're going to market that grain, because not only would we have an increased area planted domestically, you've also got to think of the potential impacts of a uh, favourable Brexit outcome on a trade environment for the UK, as well as a lower cash flow from this year's small harvest, affecting things through the first half of 21. And then on top of that, we're going to see reduced direct payments as well. So if people are going to start making these decisions about what to plant over the next sort of uh, months, immediately you've got to start thinking about that longer term business planning and what that means for your budgeting and cash flow for 21 into 2022, because that's when we're going to start to feel the bites of lower direct payments. And managing that sort of like multiple marketing season is going to be a real key thing that will help rural farmers. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think rotations will change quite a lot this year. And I mean, we've we've spoke briefly about oilseed rape. It's been it's becoming a very difficult crop to grow in certain areas. I mean, like you say, it's going to be a reduction in production, both from the fact that we've got a massively reduced acreage, and also the fact that the yield potentials down. There's a lot of fairly poor crops out there. Obviously, there are still those growers out there who can grow oilseed rape in certain regions, especially as we move further north. Do we think the oilseed rape price will keep rising and rising as, as supply decreases, or, or will there be a ceiling to those kind of price rises? I think if, if we were basing it off of, you know, sort of a UK market on its own, then you'd say that, yes, prices should be rising because there's a, a, you know, a structural undersupply. The, the issue that we have is that rapeseed itself is a very fungible, uh, homogenous product. You know, rapeseed grown in uh, Poland or Germany or France does pretty much the same thing as rapeseed grown in, in the UK. You know, you're producing oils that have the same chemical composition, you're producing protein meal that is uh, you know, leading to feed conversion rates that are similar. So we can import the products into the UK to substitute our own um, lower production. And also we can substitute to other things as well. So if we're producing as much uh, domestic rapeseed meal, the market will move to alternative protein sources. So, you know, we've got to think of the, the, the sort of the bigger picture. And this year, especially, there is a bit of a resurgence Australian production of uh, of grape, like canola crop. So I think that is the kind of the weight on the oilseed market. You know, we have at the moment a good looking crop in Canada that's going to be going into the ground. You've got a reasonable looking Ukrainian crop that will manage to, and you've got a much bigger Australian crop that will start coming online December, January time. And I think that's probably in the longer term, keeping the sentiment of the market kind of rather calm because it knows that these alternative supplies at the moment are still there. If, you, if we see a real issue with Australian rapeseed later in the season, that could have real impacts on prices and move it higher. I think the market is expecting that longer term the supplies are there, but you know we've still got six, seven months until that Australian crop will actually be landing into the, into the UK and a lot can happen the crop production cycle, weather cycle. So. I think it's interesting um, you say that because I think a lot of UK growers think we've got we've got great um, demand for oilseed rape in the UK generally. And obviously I think it's interesting to hear how it is a global market still. I mean, just thinking about the domestic market for oilseed rape, in the long term, if oilseed rape um, becomes unsustainable to grow in the UK, especially at the levels we have, have had over the last five or 10 years, do you think the domestic market, do you think the crushing plants will, will move out of the UK? Or do you think they'll still be there and just keep importing all seed rape? 
it's a really good question. It's uh, I think there's definitely a want from the industry to continue to, to operate, but I think there's a, a recognition across the industry that you know the best source of protein is definitely the, the best thing for, for the overall UK agricultural industry because of the food industry as well. Because you know, predominantly the royalty rate we're producing is uh, crushed domestically to go into um, human consumption um, vegetable oils and anything we're not using is then exported to go into uh, biodiesel into the EU. So in you know, a sort of hypothetical situation, there was no crushing, no oilseed seed rate in the UK. You know, it's a pretty significant impact on uh, our availability of food and food security because it means we're going to have to import a large portion amount of, uh, of other food products. Do I think that the crushing plants will, will close? I think if we end up with a crop that is, you know, let's say 500,000 tonnes, for instance, that's, that's not viable. And if it's going to consistently stay at that level as well, I think that's the key thing. For one or two years, you know, cope with a smaller crop. If we end up in a position where we are consistently expecting crop that would be, you know, half a million tonnes, that's half the capacity of the main plants at Erith. You know, they can't run off of that, especially with where the crop is grown around the country. So worst case scenario, um, if the production continues to fall and gets to real un unsustainable levels, then yeah, I, it's... It's just a matter of economics and a matter of business that it's not a viable business opportunity, not a viable risk for people to carry on. The, the other side of it, you know, from the other crushing plants at uh, Liverpool, it's this dockside. They can import um, soybeans to crush and, uh, and other products to crush. So they've got more opportunities to, to, to bring other things in. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, we're not exactly, you know, on a knife edge as to which way it would go, but we're certainly not comfortable the moment that's for sure yes i think just moving on from all to don't start it but i mean i think one of the big questions for a lot of uk growers um this year is what am i going to replace all seed rape with in the rotation because like i said before it's become unviable for a lot of um, a lot of uk growers so what do you think the markets for the key break crops and i'm thinking like beans and peas uh, are looking like and do you think they're going to increase so they become competitive within the rotation yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question. And um, I think the, the key thing actually is the question that you've just asked, which is what are the market prospects? Because yes, there are alternative crops that we can plant instead of oilseed rape. But the risk is, you know, you can't switch 200,000 hectares of production of oilseed rape out of that crop, move it all into mining pits, or move it all into, you know, human consumption beans, because that would completely overrun that market with supply and we'd end up you know having to be the, the lowest common denominator in, in price terms to, to find a market for it so understanding the demand potential is exactly the key way to go um, we've already slightly seen that um, sort of from an oats point of view um, over recent years that the oats area has increased because people haven't planted as much rape and they put spring oats in instead um, and because of that, we've seen you know, the, the feed oat market, especially kind of just fall through the floor because there's far too many in the country. From a beans and peas point of view, then yes, there's a there's there's an interest in using them as a source of domestic protein for, for animal feed. But the market isn't really set up for that. The processes aren't really set up for huge volumes that come through. They don't necessarily give the same type of protein and the same quality of protein um, to be able to compete directly with other sources so i think the key thing you know if you're switching out the royal seed rape fine you know if you want to go into peas and you want to go into beans then okay you've got to be aware that you know, you've got to be growing them in the first instance either with a definitive market in mind that you have agreed so you know you have a home for it and if you're growing them on the market just to sort of as a bit of sort of free market just to see what happens see what you get out of it then you've really got to manage your costs to end up uh, with a, a cost per ton otherwise if you're you know putting loads of products on and you're trying to get the best yield and you're trying to keep them as clean as possible uh, and you end up having a really high cost of production you might end up shooting yourself in the foot that all you've done is plant the crop too much money into it and then oversupplied that market so you're not getting a price return back you're in financially exactly the same position as you would if you'd have planted oil seed rape so i think that financial consideration economically growing a crop when you don't have a definitive end market for it is the key thing for, for people putting peas and beans in you know if you have a clear market 
and you know you can meet the like the top end human consumption spec, then you know, good, go for it. You've got a contract, you've got a marketing mind. If you're just aiming for the general feed market and seeing what you're going to get out of it, you've got to keep that cost as low as possible. It's all about managing risk, isn't it, with, with break crops. Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely, whether you're going to keep growing all seed rape or whether you're going to go to an alternative crop, I think it's, it's managing risk, isn't it? Definitely. And I mean, the last thing just on, on alternative break crops, Anything else coming to market? Anything else that you can see the price or rising in the in the demand rising for in the next few years? It's a difficult one, really, because you know demand across the UK for a lot of crops is relatively stable. You know, there's there's obviously benefits of um, companion cropping and, um, and sort of you know niche crops, and you know I know there's uh, you know work being done into the UK looking at doing sort of other pulses and lentils and things like that but they're not a, a defined market the key thing is they're not a volume market they're not a, a big commodity market and you know we can't forget about the classic way and thinking about your your overall arable business and if you can make a profit off of a, a simple rotation and you can be growing first second weeks and you can be growing oilseed rape and you're probably extending your oilseed rape rotation they're not doing it one in three, you've probably got to extend that rope tube rotation to at least one in six, maybe even one in eight. Really extend the rotation, start thinking of other things, then yeah, you can still run an efficient business and sort of managing again, like you said a minute ago, it's managing risk. Managing risk in your rotation has suddenly changed as to where we were two years ago. Um, and I don't think there's any magic crop that's going to suddenly appear that will be the, the savior of, uh, of domestic production at all. I think it's about managing the best of what we have and being really efficient growers of both feed grains, low cost of production, high yielding feed grains to, to make as much margin, and then ensuring that for the quality crops that we are securing the, the, the specifications for the contract at the end of the day to, um, to make a margin on those. So I think you know, it's a bit of a cliche and it's something that we do say a lot, but understanding your, your business is the key thing understanding your cost of production is the key thing you can be you can know that you're going to be planting a set acreage for your rotation of feed weeds over the next five years your target should be to minimize the cost for those maximize your margin for those and then it allows you a bit of margin of error in your other niche crops that you then start to bring into your rotation to fill the gaps of where you've extended your oil seat rate so I think it's that classic thing in business, you know, you've got to do the simple things really well to allow you to, to expand into these other niche crops and find the right one that fits your, your local market and your local requirements, as well as your own agronomic conditions as well. I mean, I think that's really good advice, a really good way to round up thinking about rotation and markets. The overall title for this podcast is talking about varieties. And, and the reason we want to do that is because a lot of people haven't been able to get out to open days and trials and serials was obviously um, took online we couldn't get out to trial plots so before we move on to our next speakers i just wanted to know in terms of markets for wheat and variety choice is there a specific market where you see the margins being better whether that's milling or distilling biscuit feed where's the value going to lie this year so I think you know if we're if we're talking about what's going to be harvested this year, it's all about group ones. Group one premiums are huge at the moment. If we're thinking about what's going into the ground for harvest next year, I still think that premiums for milling wheats will will still be strong, but it all depends on the volume that gets put into the ground. Kind of common sense, isn't it? If if there's an individual you're thinking of growing more milling wheat, you can kind of assume that most other logical farmers are thinking the same as well, and that's going to have an impact on the market. I guess the, the, the tricky thing from a varietal point of view is that a lot of, sort of more new varieties have been bred to be planted later in the drilling window to get around the sort of earliness of you know, issues of early drilling and black grass. So it's that, it's that difficulty thing every year, isn't it? You know, you could be buying a uh, sort of a, a higher quality seed for, for living wheat and you may have to take on a bit of risk of waiting to plant it later. If you plant it too early into a dry seed bed, it's going in in the sort of the first week of September and it's actually been bred to go in second week of October to get past that um, black grass side of things then you know you've got to be thinking of that as the ground and from a barley point of view I suppose distilling 
you know, long term, if you're sort of towards the north of England, you probably could have question marks over the potential for any longer um, recessionary impacts on the uh, demand for um, distilling and uh, whiskey, especially. Uh, especially for Scotland, there could be some sort of capping of the market if if we see a prolonged recession in developing nations that are further south into southern England. I know a lot of people like Planet as a variety. I think there's longer term question marks over its viability and malting to the volume that we're growing it. I think that a lot of people in Europe are starting to produce less of it to other varieties. We kind of see that phasing in like malting barley varieties where they come in and they kind of have four or five years where they grow and a new variety comes along. As brilliant a variety as Planet is, it kind of has the feeling that there's new varieties that are going to come online and start taking it over. I think that's a really good good roundup. And I just want to say thanks for joining us and that's been a really good insight and I hope all our listeners found that uh, interesting as well. So we're now joined by David Ellison, Technical Development Director at Hutchinson's. David is an expert on disease management, especially in combinable crops. And he's going to give his views on how varieties can be used with an IPM approach to control key diseases. So welcome, David, and thanks for joining us. It's okay. My pleasure. So the first question I want to talk about is we're sat here in July recording this and, and most crops are yet to be harvested. Um, so what's your overall thoughts on harvest prospects for 2020, especially looking at yield potential and current levels of disease? I think it's, it's very variable across the country. I mean, it really depends uh, how much they manage to get in in time in the autumn into good conditions. But as you'll be well aware, a lot of uh, winter socks work crops were sown very late. So you know, big variations uh, across, the, uh, uh, across the country. Generally speaking, I would say the late drilled wheat haven't performed very well, but they always started off with a pretty low yield potential anyway. Winter barleys, they seem to be okay, and the yields we've seen so far look to be pretty good on the whole. Winter rate, very, very poor, generally speaking. There are some good crops around, but uh, you know, many were lost to cabbage, stem flea beetle and waterlogging uh, in the autumn. Spring barley is variable. Depends how well it's established in the spring and whether you manage to retain soil moisture uh, when getting it in a reasonable seed bed. I would say the pulses are the things that are looking particularly good. They've, they seem to be podding quite well. So pulses, generally speaking, seem to be looking quite good this year. As far as disease levels are concerned, I think the summary of the year will be disease levels pretty low uh, on the whole. Uh, the exception, I would say, would be in winter wheat where yellow rust has hammered a lot of the, the variety. So yellow rust is the disease of the year with septoria levels pretty low on the whole. Barleys and oats pretty clean. All seed rape, a little bit of light leaf spot foamer. Uh, Verticillium beginning to show up now. Uh, as far as pulses are concerned, beans, chocolate spot, very low, bit of rust coming in now, but generally speaking, pretty low levels of disease all around. You spoke there a little bit about yellow rust being the kind of disease of the year, especially in winter wheat. So why do you think that is? And there's a bit of a follow up on that. Are there any particular varieties which have suffered the most this year? Well, we expected yellow rust to be worse this year because it tends to hit later drilled wheat crops more than the, the early drilled crops. And the weather conditions have been very good for spore development. It likes cool, humid weather, which we had for much of the year until the drought uh, hit in the spring. We've also got these aggressive new races uh, of yellow rust have come to the fore and they can build up extremely uh, fast. As far as varieties are concerned, a wide range of varieties have been hit. The ones I would highlight that our staff have uh, talked about would be Skyfall, Kinetic, uh, Kerin, Dunstan. We're getting a lot of reports on Dunstan, KWS, Zyat, and to a lesser extent, LG Spotlight. But a wide range of varieties are, are being hit. And some of the ratings with nine you know, have actually got quite high levels of, uh, of yellow rust. So it sounds like it's a bit of a, a difficult decision to make on choosing varieties based on yellow rust. So, so looking forward to this year, what would you do in terms of recommendations for varieties? And how do we use the resistance scores for yellow rust on the recommended list? 
To be perfectly honest, uh, I think the key thing with yellow rust is to monitor the crops rather than assume because it's an eight or a nine that it's not going to get uh, yellow rust. The other thing, a lot of these varieties have adult plant resistance, but it might not kick in you know, until round about the flag leaf time, by which time you know, yellow rust could have done an awful lot of damage. So the key thing is to monitor crops. And as far as I'm concerned, if I see disease developing, I'd like to, you know, to get it knocked out. And in terms of products, probably the, the strongest for knocking out the disease would be tebuconazole, cipconazole, epoxconazole, although cipro and epoxy will be going. Uh, so you know, those are the ones I'd use to knock it out. You've then got, uh, as far as SDHI is concerned, salatinol is, would be the strongest as far as yellow rust is concerned. And then the, the established strobes, the azoxystrobin, pyraclostrobin, are very good at protecting then against disease. So in terms of armory against yellow rust, we're pretty strong on the whole. So you, you've linked really nicely into kind of my next question because another key theme of uh, 2020 has really been losing key actives. So chlorothalonil being the main one, but like you've just said, looking to the future, we're going to lose some more key um, fungicides, especially in winter wheat, like epoxyconazole. Yeah. So how will this kind of impact on disease control programs in wheat next year? Yeah. I mean, it is a great shame that chlorothalonil is going. It's so useful, not just in protecting against the disease, but uh, protecting other chemistry to the buildup of resistance. So it's a shame it's gone. The closest equivalents that we've got to the chlorothalonil would be the other multisites, uh, Folpet or Mancozeb, that can be used to substitute uh, for uh, for the chlorothalonil, but at Hutchinson's we're also looking at uh, a number of biostimulant type products and have had some quite successful levels of control with those. So I'm hopeful in the future that some of these may come to the fore as an alternative and perhaps use Folpet for later on uh, in, the, in the season. Fortunately, uh, we have got good chemistry that has come to the market. Revisol, uh, Mephentryfluconazole is uh, very strong on Septoris. That's a really big addition to the Septoria control market. Although being a triazole, it will probably decline in efficacy over the years. Next year, hopefully, we'll get Inatrec coming through, a new mode of action, the QII, which is also very good. And although the SDHIs are beginning to slip, really, as far as septoria control is concerned. There are new SDHIs coming on over the next few years, and they so far look to be extremely strong on septoria. So yes, it's a shame that chlorothalonil has gone, but at least we have got alternatives, and we've got some good uh, septoria-resistant varieties as well that are going to be very important. How can we use varieties as part of that disease control program? And are there any particular wheat varieties that stand out for you that help manage disease pressure? Yeah, I, I think uh, varietal choice to me is the first uh, brick in the wall against uh, septoria. And certainly we've noticed a very clear trend over the last few years in people tending to switch towards the more resistant varieties rather than purely go on, uh, on the, the overall yield of the crop. The varieties I'd highlight, which I'm sure people are aware of, KWX stays, uh, which uh, has got a rating of 8.1, Theodore 8.5, and LG Sundance at 7.9. So I think if you're in a high-risk situation, you know, an early-sown crop in a wet area of the country, if you're going in particularly early-sown, then utilising these varieties with a higher level of resistance is a very important choice, rather than going for one with a rating of 4 or 5. That immediately puts you on the back foot. Well, it felt like earlier in the year that every area of the country was a wet area. Um, we've had some really extreme weather patterns over the last few years, not just this yeah. year, really. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it looks like this will continue into the future. Do you think this will affect how disease management will be carried out by growers in the future? Yeah, I think it will. I've given up talking about an average season. They just don't seem to exist uh, anymore. And, and I think this pattern will continue into the future with extremes. And certainly, you know, the Met Office is, is talking about more in terms of wetter autumns and winters, drier springs, wetter summers. So it's one of the difficulties, I think, for planning disease control is knowing what the weather's going to be. Little did we know coming through into this spring with this incredibly wet period, we were then going to go into a bone dry situation. So how on earth you plan for that, uh, I don't know. So I think the key thing is to make the most of any opportunities 
uh, you've got rather than wait for you know perfect uh, weather conditions I think make the most of the opportunities you've got I think varieties will help you to overcome some of the problems of these uh, weather uh, extremes and I think try and use more in the way of cultural control measures to try and take the pressure off of having to spray because if the weather doesn't allow you to spray and the disease gets a hold we don't have the level of curativity that, that we once did so I think cultural control measures in terms of, of drill date you know, will be very important and a say varietal choice all of these things to reduce the pressure on having to get those sprays on at the appropriate time and I think the use of protectant chemistry rather and rely on curative chemistry again is part of that process so another kind of theme of this year obviously with the wet autumn we had a lot of spring barley going in this year and it looks like it's going to be a crop can be widely grown for the future for lots of different reasons like we said weather black grass workload a lack of break crops what can growers and, and agronomists do to maximize yield potential but with the low prices of barley at the minute and the how, do, how is the best way to maximise both yield and profit in spring barley? I think part of the problem with spring barley this year, it almost went in by default because people couldn't get in the, in the autumn. So I think if you are going to go with spring barley, I think you have to plan for spring barley. I think one of the crucial things that we've seen this year is if you, if you muddle spring barley in into a poor seed bed, it's not going to respond very well if you muddle it into a seabed where you've lost all the moisture, it's not going to do very well. So I think the key thing is to plan in advance, make sure you've got a good seed bed that with your cultivations, you retain the moisture. So you get rapid germination, make sure you get on, uh, on top of any grass weed problems because there's very limited uh, opportunities in terms of sprays for grass weed control uh, in spring barley, optimize your inputs, optimize your nutrition, and you know, choice of varieties obviously is important to us as part of that. So I think the thing is to look after the crops rather than it be a last minute decision that you decide to put in. In terms of profitability, clearly it depends how much goes in the ground at the end of the day and what market there is for it. I suppose going for malting varieties gives you the potential to get premiums. But then again, if everybody else is going for the malting market then that premium might go down so it's a, it's a difficult one but i think overall i would say you know plan for it look after it to try and optimize the yield you get to get for it rather than putting it in by default so we spoke earlier about oilseed rape and how the area is going down and, and how difficult it is to grow but obviously there are still areas in the country where oilseed rates being grown successfully what has the disease pressure been like in oilseed rape this year and then Finally, how can growers manage disease to both reduce costs, maybe to manage risk and also just to maximise yield and profitability? You're quite right in that uh, many rate crops have been a disaster this year. And in many parts of the country, I think farmers are just going to abandon it and won't go with it. Having said that, there are some good crops around in some parts uh, of the country, and there it's worthwhile looking after them. In terms of disease, it's been pretty low on the, on the whole. We have seen a certain level of light leaf spot and foma, but not too much. Bit of verticillium beginning to, uh, to show up now, but overall disease pressure has been pretty low. And, and I think sclerotinia hasn't really been that much of an issue this year, I think because it was so bone dry during that flowering period. As far as trying to minimise the risk of disease, as with the, uh, the wheat varieties, I think choosing varieties that are less prone to foam and light leaf spot. And we have got some good varieties. I mean, Aurelia and Barbados have got an eight for light leaf spot. We've got Cruiser with a nine for foam. Aurelia again, an eight for foam. Dazzler, eight. Aviron, eight. Uh, DK Imprint, uh, one of the... Uh, uh, Clearfield varieties got a rating of eight. So if you choose these varieties, you're much less likely to get an issue as far as foam and light leaves would are concerned. As far as treatment uh, of those goes, I would very much say stick to the thresholds. Uh, go for light leaves when you see the disease uh, in the autumn. And as far as foma, it depends on the susceptibility of the variety, either 10% plants infected for the uh, more susceptible varieties, 20% for the less susceptible varieties and go on with sprays uh, there. But it's all about timing. 
if you go too early, it will run out of steam. If you go too late, the disease is established. And certainly with foam, it will get down into the stem and then you've really lost the battle before you started. So I think varietal choice is very, very important. Uh, another break crop that's going to look like it's going to become more and more popular, and especially if it has a good harvest like you said it potentially might this year, is yep. beans. But one thing that has been really important for beans has been chlorothalonil for disease control, especially a chocolate spot. Yeah. So next year, with the, without chlorothalonil, what's the best way to manage disease in, in beans? Yeah, I, I mean, for years, we've relied on cipriconazole and chlorothalonil. It was an obvious one. You went to early flowering, and then if it stayed wet, go at late flowering, and you knew you would sort out chocolate spot and rust and, and so on. Fortunately, there are some good products in the marketplace already. You've got the combination of tebiconazole or metconazole with, the as, with or without azoxystrobin. That's a, a good one. Pyractostrobin plus boscalid, that combination will work well. And for the future, there's salatinol-based products coming through to the market that should come over the next two or three years. So in the trials that I've seen from PGRO, they look to be doing a very, very similar job to that that we achieved with Alto Elite. So um, to be honest, I'm not particularly worried uh, as far as alternatives to chlorothalonil-based products are concerned at present. As far as varietal choice is concerned, we don't have any indication of any differences in varieties as far as rust or chocolate spot are concerned. The only one where we do have uh, variation is on downy mildew in spring beans and there you'll be uh, looking at the Iamu for metalaxyl or the phosphites we know can help the plant overcome the uh, the disease but uh, you know I think as far as uh, beans are concerned disease isn't too much of a worry uh, as long as you can get on at the right time as far as cultural control measures are concerned I think an important thing is don't sow the crops too thickly you get thick crops not only do they start competing with each other and often don't pod but it will also increase the risk of, of chocolate spots uh, building up getting the seed bed right again is important they don't like compaction that can build things like uh, like fusarium and again you've got to watch out for nematodes uh, as well so make sure you get your seed tested uh, and uh, you know, avoid short rotations so all of these things can hopefully increase the yield potential of your bean crops which as i said earlier look to be doing pretty well this year and could be a good alternative where people can't grow winter rape anymore so i wanted to ask one final question and it kind of encompasses everything really that we spoke about because one of the biggest changes i think we're going to see is rotation um and i just want to get your thoughts on what are your key pieces of advice for kind of having a sustainable and profitable crop rotation in the future yeah well, I think winter cereals are still going to be the, the backbone of most uh, arable rotations. The crop, as we've said, that's most at risk is winter oilseed rape. So it's really assessing where there is an alternative to winter rape that would fit nicely as a break crop and still give you good returns. So I think the key thing is, is to look at realistic margins uh, on your farm. So what yields have you got of the various crops and then work out from there at current prices and variable costs what the gross margin will be on those crops. And as far as Hutchins are concerned, we've got a spreadsheet that we utilize to put in different yield levels, different variable cost levels and so on to try and work out how they compare. If you've got a four and a half ton crop of rape, then you'll struggle to get anything else to compare with that. However, if you're down to the three ton mark, or if you're significantly losing uh, acreage due to flea beetle, then a number of other alternatives come into that. It might be more second wheats, might be more uh, winter barley, winter linseed might come into that winter beans and so on. But the key thing is to look at what you can achieve on your farm, how reliable your rape crops are, and then, uh, and then go from there. Obviously, spring grape, grape crops can be very important if you've got grass weed problems. That's something to, uh, to bear in mind. Also, helping to build soil health to get your cultivations right, to make sure that you've got good yield potential and optimise the nutrition on the crops that you grow. And I think finally, some of the stewardship options are going to come very much to the fore, particularly in areas of the field that you can't really get very good yields from it you might be better cropping certain parts of the fields and leaving other bits for stewardship options that might be better overall so i think the stewardship options will become much more important uh, in future 
But I think the key thing is to plan to think about it. What is the potential on your farm and go from there rather than assume you'll always get a 10 ton crop of wheat or a four and a half ton crop of rate. What realistically will you get and then work out gross margins from there? I think that's really interesting, David. And I think it's given a lot to think about. I think att attention to detail and planning seems to yeah. be the order of the day, really. That's been great. And, and again, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So our final speaker on this episode of Agronomy Matters is David Leeper, Seed Technical Manager at Agri. So David's got a wealth of experience in the seed industry and is going to give us a bit of a lowdown on the best new varieties, what's performed well this year, and hopefully is going to help us answer the most important question, which is what should I be drilling in 2020-2021? So hello, David, and thanks for joining us. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So... Obviously, as we're sat here now, we're coming out of the COVID-19 restrictions, which is, which is really good. But it has caused the cancellation of pretty much all the trials open days and other major events like cereals. So that's where growers and agronomists would normally go and find out information about varieties. So where can people go to get this information now? Well, it's, it's been a, a challenge for the whole industry because obviously during June and early July, we're all out in the fields, in the plots, talking about the new varieties and how to position them in terms of what the market demands are and explain some of the agronomic aspects of those varieties. And we don't have that this year. So I think ourselves at Agri and other companies within the sector, indeed, many organisations are working very hard Unfortunately, the recording dropped out at this point. However, David was saying that you can access information about varieties on the Agri website. All you need to do is log in and go onto the iFarm section where you'll find a range of information such as videos and variety reports all put into the context of agronomy on farm. Just one thing that I thought about this is, do you think that it being slightly different, do you think growers will be a bit less willing to pick up new varieties this year? And do you think they'll be more likely to stick with the tried and tested varieties? Well, there's no doubt this year has been extremely challenging with the weather, both in the autumn and the drought in the spring. The challenges have also been in terms of, of yield potential, seed that's sitting on farm, a number of factors will dictate what growers put in the ground this year. And one of the th critical things that we've seen is uh, a big shift in variety susceptibility to disease, particularly that of yellow rust. So yes, farmers will be probably staying with tried and tested varieties, but I think they will also be in a situation where they may need to shift to new varieties, or they may want to shift depending on what seed they have on farm. Yeah so following on that my next question was going to think about this so there is a lot of seed left on farm I, I read somewhere the other day about 25% of the seed bought last autumn has yet to be drilled and, and hopefully obviously people have done germination tests and stuff there that's still going to be able to go in the ground but what about seed supply obviously we did not seed crops as well didn't go in the ground and like you said dry spring is limiting yield potential are there going to be any issues for seed supply this autumn? Yes, I think there will be a shortage of seed on farm this year. Uh, farmers plan to drill late, obviously to, to combat problem weeds like blackgrass, but then got caught out with the weather. So many of their own crops didn't go until late. Our own seed crops were in a similar position. So that's already constrained yields. And yes, those crops that didn't go into the ground, we've lost those altogether. So seed is in short supply. And we're already seeing that being reflected in early orders and also on some crops, particularly things like pulses and, and winter beans, those prices already being reflected in increased seed costs. Right. So it sounds like we've got to be organised this year then. That's a, a good tip anyway. So just, you just mentioned pulses there. And I think we all probably know that the area of oilseed rates is going to be decreasing. What do you think the changes to growers' rotations will be this autumn? Well, the oilseed rate seed crop is under tremendous pressure. We've had five or six years now, particularly in the eastern counties, but more broadly where cabbage stem flea beetle has wreaked havoc on the crop. And farmers are thinking about both extending the rotation on oilseed rate or some not even growing it at all. And that does pose questions on what they're going to put into, into the rotation. Uh, there's no doubt that this autumn we are going to see 
increased wheat plantings. Farmers aren't going to get caught out twice with those later drilling, so they're going to be drilling earlier. We know that. And they will be looking for other crop options. But I've already mentioned, you know, pulses are in short supply, and that's historically been uh, one of the alternatives for winter oilseed rape. So what does that mean? That means we're going to have more white strawed crops in the rotation. We're going to have more wheat. We're potentially going to have stand-on or more barley. And potentially, again, things like more oats in the rotation and other crops such as rye, which uh, I know there's some more interest in some of these crops that maybe we haven't grown in the past simply to replace the oilseed rape. Yeah, so like you say, there, there's all options out there, but some growers will still be sticking with oilseed rape. And, and if you're going to stick with it, what variety should I be choosing? What are the key characteristics for an oilseed rape? variety to try and tackle cabbage stem flea Well at Agri we've been as part of the evaluation of new varieties we've taken a lot of time to assess the growth habit of oilseed rape and we know that it's always important particularly in a crop which goes into the ground towards the end of August or into early September when conditions can start to become marginal. So we've always tended towards varieties that have got a, a fast autumn growth habit. They put on a lot of vegetative growth during the autumn. But work that we've carried out over the last uh, three or four years suggests that not only that is beneficial, but the ability of the crop to grow away in the spring early with vigorous regrowth can help it cope with higher levels of larval damage. But the problem with that is you get the crop established, but then it's much more exposed to the egg laying, and the development of larvae within the crop. So we need varieties that can cope with that larval damage. So yes, we can do whole, all sorts of things to establish the crop, but things like variety choice is one of the few options we've got to help mitigate against high larval infestation. So there's some good varieties out there. I mean, we our biggest selling variety is a variety from BASF called Indy 1035, which has got a very vigorous growth habit. The decalb varieties from Bayer have also shown a very vigorous growth and, and also other varieties with turnip yellows virus resistance, which suit early drilling. Vigorous growth habit, both autumn and spring, are also uh, significant varieties in our portfolio. So um, Ambassador is a variety that we'll be focusing on this autumn. But it's not all hybrids. There are conventional varieties. Conventionals occupy a significant uh, acreage still. Our biggest selling variety in the north with that growth habit is Anastasia. And in the southern region, we're looking at a variety called Aardvark with particularly vigorous spring growth. That's really good tips. It's nice to see that Anastasia is still doing, doing well for the guys in the north. It, it's been around for quite a few years now. And just moving on, um, like we're sat in here in July, so before most crops have, have been harvested, I know a few, a few combines have started, started rolling. But what do you think the yield potential is for winter wheat in particular this year? And are there any varieties that have really stood out um, this year which growers might consider growing next year? Well, I think everybody has, from October onwards, realises that the yield potential of our winter cereal crop is under pressure and farmers have tended to budget towards those lower yields. Uh, what took us by surprise is the, the spring drought and we thought some of those later drill crops would have the ability to cover but many of them were affected with water logging. This is not just cereals but all crops in the autumn so they produce relatively poor roots. Uh, that obviously took its toll in the spring with the drought conditions and yet we've had rain to help these crops come on but again it's turned dry so we're going to see significant regional differences certainly much further north yield outturn looks quite good but in parts of uh, east anglia and midlands uh, the yield potential is relatively low so i think this autumn the varieties that will perform well are those that can cope with those challenging conditions we have seen yield stability as a, as a key factor in variety choice. One of the most significant uh, varieties coming to the market introduced last year was X Days from KWS, 
with its good grain quality uh, because of its group two status, uh, but also good disease resistance. One of our biggest selling varieties last year, and again, a significant variety for this autumn will be Graham, a variety which doesn't really sit right up there in terms of yield, but has been a consistent performer year in, year out with good grain quality. And those are the sort of varieties that I think will continue to feature. Of course, on lighter land, not specifically for milling, Skyfall is another variety. And again, that's a very adaptable variety. And I think farmers like that because it can go into the main drilling window or if conditions get tough, it can go late or even into the spring. So I think those varieties are some of the market leaders because they're consistent. Skyscraper again is a, a variety which has taken a, a significant share of the market. Got tall straw quite consistent across land types. It's not particularly competitive and it's not particularly stiff, so maybe there are better varieties. But again, those sort of varieties are proven consistent. And what about the new varieties that are onto the recommended list this year? Are there any new ones that are worth considering? So in terms of new varieties this autumn, there have been a number of new varieties that are coming through. Uh, the one that's grabbing the headlines, I suppose, is, uh, is uh, Insita, which has got high yields. But I think we're being a little bit cautious because of its parentage. Uh, we've seen some shifts in yellow rust races this year and a breakdown on some of the varieties and one of the parents uh, that's being widely used across uh, some of the new varieties Hereford a couple of years we saw that break to yellow rust so insight is up there it's grabbing the headlines because of its yield but clearly we have some questions about its long-term uh, sustainability a variety which is also interesting uh, KWS variety parking uh, is become, a, I suppose, more interesting because it's, it's short, it's got good grain quality, it's really stiff and probably suits the sort of Grafton type positioning that farmers, particularly in sort of Yorkshire and further north and even in the west, like. But I think it's important to say that some of the claims that the breeders are making in terms of a true Grafton replacement aren't quite there. It's not a very good second wheat, for example. It's best grown as a first wheat. Shouldn't be drilled too early, which was always the drilling date for Grafton. So, you know, watch how you position these varieties and don't take the single positioning of the breeder to be how you should grow the variety. Saki, uh, a soft wheat, has come from RAGT, looks very interesting. Yellowrus seems to be holding at the moment and looks a potentially good variety. Another variety that is rapidly sold out is a variety called Wolverine from RAGT, um, which has grabbed the headlines because it contains a trait which confers resistance against barley yellow dwarf virus. Now, of course, a, a couple of years ago, we saw the last of deter and our crops this autumn went into the ground without the protection of the seed treatment. So it's exposed to that particular virus. So it's timely that it's come into the market. Interestingly, it topped our trials in terms of yield uh, and has got good disease resistance and uh, has, has captured, the, captured the headlines. Time will tell how it's taken up. Uh, it seems to be a relatively high input, high output variety. Um, so it will, it will need some management. It sounds really exciting and I think lots of innovations coming in the seed market, which is, which is great. So I just want to speak a bit about positioning this year, like you just mentioned. Early drilling is going to be popular this year, rightly or wrongly, like you said, for grass weed pressure. What kind of wheat should I be looking at if I want to drill in that early drilling slot? Well, I think that is a, that's a really good question because many farmers will be looking to drill early this autumn. I think they have to stand back and think, is wheat the right crop? Because we know that it's not competitive against uh, blackgrass. And indeed, compared with other crops, such as barley, 
it's far less competitive. And arguably in a blackgrass situation, your yield will be compromised far more in wheat than it will in barley. So I think for those looking to drill in September, particularly where they've got uh, high levels or you know they've got a blackgrass history on the farm, would be better to consider hybrid barley. More competitive, you can drill it in late September, early October, where it will yield at its potential. And the evidence we have from our own trials suggests that that will not only cope better in a blackgrass environment and keep blackgrass to a lower level, it will also cope better with less favourable soil conditions, particularly on land that's come over from last year in not the best shape. So early drilling, we would suggest hybrid barley. And many farmers may look at the commodity price for barley being at a discount to wheat, but they should look at what the likely gross output from the whole will be when you take into, a ta- into account the yield potential. And what kind of varieties should I be selecting there then if I'm going to go uh, down winter barley? The breeders have been very successful over the last decade because not only have they brought the yields of hybrid barley above those of two row, they've uh, been able to achieve a significant gain in specific weight. And that's always been the, the issue around growing six row barleys. And that is no longer an issue. So our preferred variety is Belfry, which is in relatively short supply, but Bazooka is the, the biggest variety in the market. And also King's Barn is a, a newer addition to the market. And this year we're seeing the introduction of a new variety with good brackling resistance and really good rinko and disease resistance uh, called Armadillo. So Syngenta have done a great job there. Now, arguably, the, the six row types particularly the hybrids are more competitive. But again, we do see differences in our trials in terms of the competitiveness between varieties of the two rows. And the two rows are uh, are also a good option. Our biggest selling variety is actually a variety that's not on the, the recommended list, a variety called Memento. And we've specifically picked that for its good grain quality and its consistent yield performance and really good disease resistance. But there's new varieties like KWS Hawking coming on to, into the market this autumn, which at the level of KWS Orwell, but with improved mildew and other benefits. So another position that I think we'll probably see a higher proportion of crops this year will be the second wheat position. What wheats are best for this position? Well, we've taken a lot of interest in second wheat over the years because there's no doubt varieties perform quite differently in first and second wheats. Um, Historically, people have often chosen to grow something with a bit of quality. um, And, you know, that's often a positioning of some of the bread making wheats where you're getting less protein dilution because you're, you're opting for a lower yield potential situation. And varieties like Zayat, uh, a really good uh, second wheat. Uh, Skyfalls are uh, generally quite a good second wheat, but came unstuck two or three years ago, but generally quite consistent in that slot. And things like X days is okay. I mean, it's not a particularly good second wheat, but it's, it's relative performance is, is quite good. So those suit that, that slot. Uh, and then we probably look at the other wheats. The soft wheats aren't generally doing so well best best grown as a first wheat although skyscraper its yield potential drops in the second wheat but it's still quite high but then we're probably looking at the hard feeds things like kerin as high potential wheat and of course gravity which we don't particularly rate in a blackgrass situation or early drilled but when the, the drilling is delayed or indeed as a second wheat it, it, it does do, do, do the job. So, you know, those are probably the key varieties for the second wheat slot. That's great. So, I mean, I've got one final question now, and it's a bit of a general question because there'll be a lot of people out there picking varieties for a range of different crops this year. We've spoke a bit about how rotations might change. So in your selecting a variety when you're advising a grower, what are the key factors that you consider and what are your top tips for kind of selecting a variety? Well, if we're looking at uh, wheat, for example, our top choice will be yield, 
consistency, not necessarily the highest yield. Standing and good lodging resistance, we think, are uh, paramount. And we're, we're happy to manage varieties that are weaker, but as long as they respond to plant growth regulators. Disease resistance is, is important. And the number one disease that we consider is septoria triticae. But of course, we need to understand the shifts in other diseases, particularly things like yellow rust. We can control yellow rust, but there comes a point where it becomes unmanageable. And then, obviously, it probably should be considered first and foremost is the, the market opportunities. Uh, but I think agronomics are becoming as important if not more important than yield and we are seeing varieties that probably capture the market but they're not necessarily the highest yielding varieties and i think that we see that continuing into the future well i think that's a really good uh, note to end on and that's been really interesting david so thanks for joining us that's been a pleasure thank you i hope you've enjoyed listening to this month's episode of agronomy matters before we go, I want to give a quick update on what has been happening at BASIS as we slowly move out of the COVID-19 lockdown. We are still approving a range of CCD events, which are now almost exclusively online, and there are further opportunities for our members to gain CCD points via the BASIS classroom. We've also decided to make special register certificates available online rather than posting certificates out to all our members. To access your certificate, simply log into the members area on the BASIS website and your certificate will be available to download there. Accessing the members area on the BASIS website is also how you can claim a CPD point for listening to this podcast. Simply click on Submit CPD Point and type in BASIS Varieties Podcast under the publication title. Thanks again for listening to the BASIS Podcast, Agronomy Matters. And please join us again on the next episode.